Hey there, you're listening to Ghost Notes and Friends, the podcast where we talk about music inside and out with friends. My name's Noah, you probably know me better as Polyphonic. I'm Corey, you probably know me as 12-Tone, and today we're joined by another incredible video essayist. Do you want to introduce yourself? I do. Hello, my name is Maggie Mae Fish, and yeah, I do video essays about movies. So the other fun thing that people like to do in their spare time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. If you're unfamiliar with Maggie's stuff, check out her Nebula original Unrated. I've been watching that and that's absolutely fantastic. Really, really fun, really fun series. If you want to tell people what that's about before we we dive into things. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I feel like you'll probably love it, too. It's called Unrated and it's about the history of sex and sexuality in movies. Each episode covers a specific director, and we look at three of their movies, kind of just talk about how they construct or deconstruct sex and gender in their filmography. Cool. Yeah. And so for the topic that we decided to talk about today is we wanted to talk about kind of late career outputs, I guess, of artists. I mean, I think where late career is kind of depends on artist to artist and we'll yeah. look at that mm -hmm. but just kind of looking at you know most musicians kind of have a, a period of an imperial phase or a time in the sun or whatever you want to call it but very few of them actually just stop releasing music after that so we wanted to yeah. kind of explore a little bit of you know some of the successes of this some of the failures of this and maybe a place to even start it off is just talk about kind of the late career as you know uh, a state of being for artists when do you guys think an artist kind of enters their late career what do you imagine as that is that like a time frame thing or is it more sort of nebulous good question good esoteric question to start us off <laughs> <laughs> oh man i think late career it kind of just reminds me of let's say an artist you know has a hugely successful album and or you know couple of albums. I think anything after that could be considered late career. I think, you know, after someone hits something big, then afterwards, I think could be late career. I don't know. That's just my yeah. gut tells me. And it's kind of weird to just do it based yeah. off of success, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. What do you guys think? I mean, I think, and this, this is maybe a, a slightly callous way to describe it. And I don't mean it that way, but it's how it's going to come out. I think of the idea of regression to the mean, right? Like Maggie's saying, you have this this big, giant breakout success or this like super golden age or golden period or whatever. And then at some point, once you're so culturally relevant or you're putting out such incredible music, it's kind of likely that it's going to drop back a little bit. Like not necessarily to, you know, become bad, obviously. Right, just like new things, new artists, you know. Yeah, that, that cultural relevance is going to dip once you're at like the level of, you know, Led Zeppelin in the early to mid 70s. Like, yeah. you can't really stay at that level. There's nowhere to go up from there. And so you will naturally trend downward. Part of what causes that regression to the mean as well is, you know, there is, whether quality exists or not, there's an argument yeah. for a qualitative thing. But I think there's also an argument for just sheer levels of cultural relevance, especially because with music, cultural relevance tends to be tied to people who have cultural relevance. It usually means they're 
relevant with people in their late teens through early 20s. And then, you know, that fan base ages up and, you know, you enter a a state where you look at someone, even like someone who still, by all means, is a incredibly sort of like huge, culturally relevant artist. Look at someone like Taylor Swift and she's still putting out albums that are celebrated and she's still, you know, doing Taylor Swift stuff. But her cultural relevance as, you know, we millennials have aged into our 30s and, you know, are are less drivers of culture. Taylor Swift dropping an album just isn't the same moment that it was when she dropped, you know, like 1989 or something like that. Like she's kind of aged into late career. And I think she's an example of someone that I don't think had a, you know, distinct fall off in quality. I think she's still releasing really, really great albums. She's still one of the best melodists ever to live. But she just doesn't have that cultural impact that she did at her height. Mm -hmm. I think she's an interesting example because I think in a sense she is still, I mean, she is still very culturally relevant. The Eras tour is breaking some records. That is true. But it's still, it feels like her cultural relevance is different than it was. Yeah, it feels, maybe this is it. Like, it feels like she still has cultural relevance, but like the release of Midnight's didn't feel like a moment You know, like, yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. It feels like late career albums, you know, is an opportunity for artists uh, to take more risks because, yeah, like less eyes are on them. So I think in a way that is less pressure, even though maybe they don't feel that way, but (laughs) like uh, creatively, uh, you know, it is a a time where artists can challenge themselves. Yeah. And to that point and to Noah's point, Like, part of that is that to the extent that you are still culturally relevant, it does sort of become more about you being culturally relevant rather than Mm. the specific music you're making. So, like, for instance, Jackson Brown, unambiguously in his late career at this point. Yeah. If he put out an album, I'm going to listen to it. I don't need that album to be like wall to wall bangers like (laughs) I might expect from someone that I was like just getting into because I have an attachment to him as an artist. Uh, I don't know if I've mentioned that on the podcast before. (laughs) Actually, I guess probably the best example for me is another artist I've mentioned regularly, Rob Zombie. But this, I have a very specific story here, which is that um, I remember when he did, I think it was Electric Warlock. He did a cover of like uh, Grand Funk Railroads, We're an American Band. And there was sort of a... I remember reading a review where the reviewer was basically like, why would you do that? Because, like, <laughs> it's the only conceivable reason that, that the reviewer could come up with him yeah, was to try and, like, reach out to a new audience. And, like, in the mid-2010s, what new audience is Rob Zombie reaching? <laughs> like, you know, he's sort of, people are settled into either, like, they love Rob Zombie or they're not interested in Rob Zombie anymore. What audience are you going to reach by covering Grand Funk Railroad? They're, they're <laughs> definitely the talk of the town in the 2020s. That's part of it. It's like part of why I'm not sure I buy the yeah. reviewer's theory. I think it's much more likely that he just liked like the song. Like that song, yeah. yeah. Uh, but like, I think you you look at a lot of a lot of what he's been doing and... Like, it's very much, and I'm sure I'm going to talk about Rob Zombie's later period more over the course of this episode, uh, but it's very much just him doing whatever the heck he wants. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. 
on the assumption that the people who have been with him so far are going to be into whatever he wants to do. And the people who have already fallen off aren't coming back. I think that's a good point. Well, and I think that's something that like, I was just thinking as you were talking about kind of Jackson Brown versus someone like Rob Zombie. Like, I think something that's interesting about Jackson Brown is I think Jackson Brown kind of fits into, I think there's different, different kinds of artists have more success in their late career. And often I find artists who are the more sort of like poetic songwritery type tend to age kind of more gracefully. You know, you look at the the Bob Dylans of the world who, you know, Dylan had some flops, but has had, depending on sorry, how who? you define it, three to four late career revivals. Yeah. <laughs> or Leonard Cohen, you know, who very similar, yeah. kind of had a lot of great albums. Whereas when you look at people that are more sort of, especially someone like Rob Zombie, I don't think you can't be old and do metal but i think that a lot of like like metal and punk and a lot of these genres the louder genres tend to feel more youthful yeah and this is part of why i find rob zombie's later career really interesting is that i feel like there was a significant not necessarily active effort but was if you follow the style his sound changes dramatically yeah around venomous rat and from there on especially into like Lunar Injection, which is his most recent. It still sounds a lot like what I love about Rob Zombie, but it feels not more mature, but like someone more mature made it, if that distinction mm-hmm. makes any sense. Because yeah. obviously it's Rob Zombie. It was never going to sound particularly mature. That That's not the goal. Yeah. That wouldn't really work for his, that's not his vibe. Yeah, no one wants that. But no, no one asked you for that, Rob. Like, If you wanted to try it, I'd be there for it. I think you see this a lot with, like you're saying, especially with like, you know, poet, singer, songwriter people is a sort of comfort with age and comfort with maturity that comes from that you start to see in those albums they're making in their like 40s, 50s, 60s, where like they're moving away from that useful thing and they're finding new and interesting things to say Yeah, mm-hmm. at a different period in their life. Yeah. Well, you also have artists who were so big, so young that, you know, if on paper it's their late period but you know they just yeah. get their 30s like our age yeah. yeah rebecca black and kesha both had <laughs> rebecca yeah. black i can't i can't believe her <laughs> album that came out it was great but it's, yeah yeah it's it's funny too <laughs> to see that same kind of progression from yeah. like a child to a human being age like I'm, I'm pretty sure justin bieber is younger than me and he's in his late period yeah. <laughs> late career period yeah. at this point One on that that I actually wanted to mention, because it's one that I don't think a lot of people actually consider it a late period album. If you look at when it was released, it was considered one, is Green Day's American Idiot, right? Because, like, Green Day got their start very young in, like, as teens in the late 80s and early 90s. And, you know, like, they had that very, you know, skate punk, slacker, stoner punk thing. And then they were kind of falling off as that movement was kind of, you know, the world was surpassing that movement in the late 90s and early 2000s. And then they, you know, hit the scene with, and that speaks to what you were talking about too, Corey, with the the maturity of that too, right? Like, yeah. like American Idiot is a very mature album with very, you know, sort of, interesting cohesive takes on bush's america by a band who up to then was like 
most famous for Longview, you know? Like, we look yeah. at it now, it's probably the album that most people associate with Green Day. It's like a late period album by by most definitions, especially yeah. in especially in punk scenes where punk bands do not last long most of the time. No, I think that also sort of brings up a kind of central uh, topic in this, which is the idea of like late career revival. Yes. Oh, yeah. And the example that I always think of is Drops of Jupiter came out. Oh, and yeah. I was like, OK, this is Train. Cool. <laughs> This is the one song I will ever have to care about by train. Uh, don't get me wrong. I like that song. It's a solid song. What, 15, 20 years later, Hey Soul Sister came out, and that was also by train? I don't think that's and it took 15, me so 20 long. years later. I, I think it was like 15 years. 20, probably it was, not. It was like 10, 10 to 15. It was eight years. That sounds, that, there's no way okay, it was eight yeah. years. I refuse to believe that, even though you definitely just looked it up. But anyway, point is, like, it took me quite a while to reconcile those two trains in my head and realize that they were, in fact, the same band. Yeah. Because I just had spent, apparently, eight years of my life completely unaware of Trainless. Tra not never thinking about train. <laughs> Trainless. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Was it really eight years? That That's nuts. Do you guys have any favorite sort of like late career revival songs or albums that you wanted to talk about in general this episode? I don't know if it's my favorite, but I think in, an interesting one is the ABBA album that came out. Oh, yeah. Two years ago. Yeah. And the reason I think it's so interesting is because the subject matter was about them aging and what that felt like and looked like to them, which is very interesting because, I mean, it's the exact opposite of what their old albums were yeah. about. And yeah. <laughs> it was a very late career release. And to have it like reflected in the music. Yeah, yeah. very interesting. In our heads, we very much box artists in for the most part. I mean, there's some artists yeah. that yeah. make a career not being boxed in, but most artists, we box them in and think of them as intrinsically related to a certain time, a certain scene, mm -hmm. and think of them as a certain age, and don't think of them as, like, complex humans who go through, you know, <laughs> all of the myriad emotions of being human, and yeah, yeah, like, aging is such a huge part of that, that in general, aging is very rarely talked about in music at all. It's even more rarely talked about in what ABBA does, which is just straight pop, right? Like it's it's yeah. so rare. Pop is such a youthful music. Yeah. Like speaking of like pop dance music, late career revivals, I feel like I have to mention Random Access Memories. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. I don't know exactly how old the two of you are, but if you're even remotely my age, then you spent most of your life with a very specific impression of who Daft Punk was <laughs> that mostly consisted of the sentence around the world. <laughs> That's not true. There, there were others. Uh, harder, better, faster, stronger, obviously. One more time. They had a bunch One of One more time. The jeans ad they did for Gap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but there was, there was just like, was just such an impression of like, who they were. And first of all, Random Access Memories, incredible name for an album. Oh, uh, it's yeah. so good. Especially like a late career revival <laughs> album. It's so, it's so perfect. Flawless execution on that point. When I did a video about Get Lucky, I was reading about this. And like one of the things that they were saying was that they had tried to sort of take their sampling and like reconstructing approach and do that with a live band. 
and with live artists and sort of not to say that working with live instrumentalists is more mature than working with samples, but it was an evolution mm -hmm. of their process yeah. that really showed their depth as artists in a way that you don't necessarily, in a different way than what you would see from their earlier stuff, while still having the spirit of their earlier stuff. And so like, if you liked Daft Punk in the late 90s, you would like Random Access Memories. Well, and I think what's interesting about that is Random Access Memories is actually a double late career revival because it's also a huge yeah. return to the spotlight for Nile Rodgers, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, not, Nile Rodgers yeah. was arguably like maybe the most important person in disco, like definitely top five most important people in disco. Yeah. And Rogers also High in the like, conversation. Yeah. 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 And and like produced David Bowie's Let's Dance and stuff like that. And yeah, I mean I think it's a really interesting sort of like that that album represents a very yeah. uh, sort of like a vindication for Nile Rogers, who was a, a disco auteur whose music got, you know, completely kind of like unjustly killed by the disco yeah. backlash. Mm -hmm. And that's him kind of bringing it bringing it back in a in an incredibly incredibly thorough effective way like i think that's such a an, yeah. an interesting triumph in late careers cuz it's it's late career for daft punk it's even later career for nile rodgers oh, yeah. yeah yeah and it sort of also speaks to the point earlier about sort of being more open to experimentation where like you know daft punk was in a position where like you know there was there's no real reason to not like swing for the fences and to yeah. not just, you know, right. they wanted to work with Niall Rogers. So, <laughs> so you know, bring him in, see what happens. Yeah, they they made <laughs> that happen. <laughs> I think it, in the in the like late career pop sphere, someone that's interesting, too, because there's no denying that she's in her late career is Beyonce. But there was never a lull. Yeah. Right. Like there was. Yeah. Th mm -hmm. Which I mean, is what makes her such an incredible outlier. But it's I'd put her the introduction of her self-titled album and the introduction of kind of like the, you know, Beyonce, the feminist Beyonce, the politically engaged Beyonce. That is definitely a career shift. But at that that album came like a couple years after a multi-platinum like her four was yeah. an absolutely like astounding, like one of the best pop albums of the era and you know it's such an interesting question with her because you know in my mind I think her self-titled is probably when she enters her late career there's no lull that signifies that right yeah it's not a revival or anything yeah it's right. just a smooth transition it's a harder feat to accomplish but I think that it is a very different feat to stay relevant forever and i mean what's amazing about beyonce is she stayed relevant forever and she definitely changed her sound like you know she's become more hip-hop and more tuned into what's interesting and going on but it's not like she like fully changed her sound and who she is in a way that you know someone like someone like somebody who's had several career revivals bowie was constantly changing his sound. Well, Bowie never really changed his sound, did <laughs> exactly. he? Exactly. I, I don't I don't remember that. <laughs> There's such a continuity to Beyonce, and I think that yeah. that's a real, real anomaly within yeah. pop music history. Yeah. Yeah. When we're talking about revivals, I mean, not even a revival, someone, a band who's been making music and maybe making too much music because it's all been so bad is like a Weezer, oh, every yeah. song still sounds the same. It oh. sounds 
like a Weezer song, but yeah. it's depressing. I think there's something <laughs> about, there's a lot of those like 2000s alt-rock pop punk bands that I do not think, like, like Fall Out Boy too have yeah. been mm-hmm. continuing in a lot of, and well, I mean, recently they they did their, their cover of We Didn't Start the Fire. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, but they certainly did do that. I, I feel like there's something about, and this that's kind of what I was talking about a little with like the punk earlier. A lot of that, like 2000s punk alt rock, there's so much youthful energy to the mm-hmm. prime stuff that it, it just yeah. kind of feels weird. Yeah. Like Blink 182 mm. recently got back together and like so this stuff, it was like, it was fine. I just, I listened to it and I was like, yeah, this sounds like a Blink 182 song recorded in 2023. Cool. Yeah. Like, I will say, and this is perhaps the hottest take and most controversial opinion I have ever dropped on Ghost <gasps> Notes. Uh, oh my God. I don't understand the hate that Fallout Boy's Century gets. Like, I kind of like that song. Like, it, is it Fallout Boy listened to Imagine Dragons? It was like, we would like to do that now. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. But they did it well, I think. This is more negative than I like to be about music generally. But I think the <laughs> thing with a lot of late career, like Fall Out Boy and Weezer and like a lot of these things is I don't think that many of these songs are actively bad. You know, like I don't think yeah. I don't think it's that these people who are good mm-hmm. at writing songs suddenly forgot how to write songs. I just think that there's so many of these things where it's like, okay, why would I listen to this over, you know, something from the Blue Album or something like that? Like, what are you offering me that is new and different than things that you've done before? And I think that that's often where bands struggle with, you know, and and a lot of bands that just sort of retain Mm -hmm. their sound. Like someone like like ACDC, you know, it's like, like, yeah, Yeah. they've been doing 20 years (laughs) of the exact same thing and... It works for them. They but are not sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> they've, they've been very clear on that. <laughs> there are two bands in that genre that I think had a much more successful late period albums. Vampire Weekend being one I really liked. Father oh, of the yeah. Bride. Well, I guess yeah. their earlier stuff is very exuberant and youthful. Yeah, I to me, that was such like a growth and maturity for them. And parts of it sound exactly like Vampire Weekend, but they had really fun, creative things on the album that I'd never heard them do before. And also Death Cab for Cutie's Asphalt Meadows. That one I also really enjoyed. Death Cab, in my mind, and Vampire Weekend to some degree, uh, but Death Cab especially really fall into the auteur poet songwriter thing. Yes, yeah. Because, like, Ben Gibbard is is a very... Yeah, yeah. He's he's a really clever songwriter and clearly and I I think that's something where it's something that I think is interesting because when you look at other forms of art like when you look at writers and poets and stuff like that most barely even exist in their 20s let alone like peak in their 20s right you look at most novelists it's it's not uncommon for a really successful novelist to publish their first book in their 40s or 50s you know and you look at screenwriters you look at you look at writers in any capacity and it's a lot more common to see kind of a I I guess a larger age curve and a larger gap it's funny because if you look at even film there are very few directors whose first film is really you know 
the great yeah. film that yeah. you want to listen Nails to. It. Yeah. Yeah. But there are so many artists who the first album is that. I, I think there's, I don't think it's the majority of artists that the first album is their best, but there's a ton of examples of it artists. It happens who, regularly. Yeah. 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 Their first yeah. albums or their first like three or four albums are like an incredible run. And yeah, that's just something that you very rarely see in other mediums. Authors also, like in in books, you you don't often see people whose first book is, you know, the runaway success. Even authors that kind of like, I often find like, you know, a new author will hit the scene and everyone will be talking about them. And you'll read this series and you'll, you'll look and they'll be like, they've had like four other books and one other mini series yeah. that have been like, yeah. you know, like well received, but not like critical runaway successes. Yeah. Also, a thing I wanted to highlight that I think Maggie was hitting on there with the Vampire Weekend point is sort of the tension between a couple of things we've talked about, which is the fact that like the late period art artist stuff that works best is stuff that matures, but also which Noah was bringing up the tendency for audiences to sort of pigeonhole an artist into a specific box. Yeah. And how like, you know, I think Coming back to centuries, I think a lot of the pushback from that was that it didn't sound like Fallout Boy. What Fallout Boy yeah. mm-hmm. was doing. It was such a radical departure from what Fallout Boy fans liked about Fallout Boy. That whereas, you know, if you look at, you know, something like like Weezer, a lot of their stuff sounds too much like Weezer. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. there's this really tight balance of like you have to be different but not change. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting because I think that there's, you know, especially a lot of the like really sort of like great legacy acts. You see that with like you, you listen to Paul McCartney's late career stuff and it's like, yeah, this guy is he's not doing stuff that's exactly like the Beatles. He's not doing stuff that is radically different from Paul McCartney. And, you know, you listen to it and you're like, oh, yeah, this is still the greatest pop melodist ever to have lived. (laughs) Like he's still writing really incredible stuff. It just feels like the world has passed that by, you know, like passed by the whatever it is that enraptured everyone with Paul McCartney. And I feel like the problem there might even be like, it's difficult to find relevance as Paul McCartney in a world filled with people influenced by Paul McCartney, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and who are not Paul McCartney. Yeah, uh. yeah. <laughs> well, one of them is. Potentially. Yeah, singular, yeah. Another person who's got, like, really solid late career output, uh, in, very similar to Paul McCartney, is Paul Simon. And, and I mean, yeah. Paul Simon's interesting because if you look at, you know, he's another one that you can have you can have several things that you could call his late career because you could call Graceland a late career revival for Paul for Paul Simon, right? Something about those Pauls. I don't know what it is. Um, <laughs> I mean, you could call it one for Paul McCartney too. You wouldn't be right. But. <laughs> that is true. I think it's interesting because I think, yeah, you see a lot of the aging with grace and a lot of the maturity in these artists. It's not yeah. something that's really... They just don't find cultural purchase, I guess, right? Yeah, and I think Mm. that sort of leads into, and this is the thing we talked about a little bit when Lola was on, uh, but a fascination with mine is these sort of like 
extremely late career. Yes. Uh, so what I think was like retrospective periods that artists yeah. go through sometimes. Uh, yeah. The example I tend to go to here is the zealot gene, Jethro Tull, which is like Ian Anderson took like 20 years off of making albums. The last one he had done was in like 1999. And then in, I think it was 2021, one that the zealot gene came out might have been 2022 but he, he just drops this album that sounds like a combination of pretty much every previous jethro tull album and like it feels very much like an artist who has finished evolving and is fine with that yeah and it's just mm -hmm. knows what his music sounds like wants to make more of that and so he just does and because he's half of Jethro Tull. Oh, he's, he is Jethro Tull. He owns the name. I just, I have opinions about Martin Barr's role in that band, but uh, Ian Anderson owns the name. He was there before Martin Barr was. So fair enough. But like, because he is to an extent Jethro Tull, he can trust that there are at least some, some portion of an audience who will just pick up a new Jethro Tull album yeah. to check it out. And so he has the mm -hmm. space to just relax and make the thing he wants to make based on what sort of music brings him joy to make, which I think is really beautiful. I think my ultimate example for that is, and honestly, like in my mind, the gold standard for the late career revival is Blackstar because like, sure. I, I consider mm. Blackstar to be probably yeah. David Bowie's best album. Like, I think it is. Yeah. I think it's in my mind. It's, it's one of the best albums of the decade. It is a, it is an artistic work. The likes of which is, you know, seldom seen in any medium, but even more rare in music, like an artist, you know, facing mortality in the eye and creating a piece that actually successfully captures the incredible, you know, complex emotions of, you know, being on death's doorstep. It's, it's such a, it's such an incredible piece of music that, yeah, and, and I think this is the thing with the most successful late career things. Maybe this is it. It doesn't feel like it could have been made by yeah. anyone yeah. else, by a younger man, by a different yeah. era. Mm -hmm. Whereas, yeah, yeah, you listen to some of the late career Weezer stuff or something like that. And it's like, yeah, this could have been made and probably could have been made better by a younger Weezer. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Jenny Lewis, I would say, also falls into that category. Yeah, I mean, her... Last album, her later music is just very mature. It's about like mature, depressing adult subject matters. I was like a backwards yeah. fan where I like heard her newer albums <laughs> and saw her in concert and then listened to her older stuff and her other bands. But oh man, it's been really fun to see her. Yeah. Mature as an artist. So. I, I'm, I'm trying to think now of of artists that I've got into from their late career stuff, because that's a that's an interesting. Yeah. Sort of, that yeah. Really sort of like changes your your experience of the artist. To go back to one you mentioned earlier, I, I was not super into Green Day before American Idiot. That's I knew true. they existed, mm. but like mm -hmm. that that was the album that got me like interested in Green Day. And then I went back and listened to their previous stuff. And yeah, I think I heard it very differently from someone who was listening to that in the early 90s. Yeah. Just because, you know, I was viewing it through the lens of the band that had made American Idiot. Yeah. Yeah. I think Green Day was one for me, too, because I was I, I mean, I was a kid when American Idiot came out yeah. and I didn't really know mm -hmm. anything about Green Day before that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember there were like ads for American Idiot on TV 
and I had never Whoa. seen ads for an album before. Besides, you know, compilation albums. Yeah. Like, oh, the 50 mm. best power ballads <laughs> or whatever. But this, this was like just an album that a band was releasing now. And I just like, they were playing like, it was Boulevard of Broken Dreams that was playing during it. I know that. But it just, this isn't super relevant to the like career thing, but it was very weird. <laughs> it's kind of funny because that actually makes me think of like, like, late late career green day had some of yeah. the worst ads for an album i've ever seen and just kind of like <laughs> announced themselves <laughs> as culturally irrelevant uh marketing an album a couple years ago where did you did you guys see this they had a billboard where it's like you know music for people that still love loud rockin roll and yeah. you know <laughs> yeah yeah that whole yeah. and and i feel like that's something that often bands don't realize that their moment has passed them by yeah. and that like i i see it with a ton of in general a ton of legacy rock acts are so kind of like obsessed with a very outdated version of you know the power of rock and roll and rock and hard is what we yeah. do and all of that stuff that you know was I, I guess maybe interesting and novel in the 70s um or 80s but it, <laughs> it really like there's nothing there's nothing that will turn me off of a rock act faster than them declaring that Rock is still alive and we're still kicking. Yeah. Right. Yeah. One of my favorite bands growing up as a kid was Billy Talent. And Billy Talent, their early stuff, very youthful, very fantastic. Um, and then they've kind of aged into a radio rock band. And they have a song called Louder Than the DJ about how rock is louder than DJs. <laughs> <laughs> well, <Wow. yeah. laughs> I feel like that there's just something yeah. it, it's not very graceful to age like that, you know, yeah. and it makes mm -hmm. me as a listener uncomfortable because I'm like, oh, really? Is that is that really what we're doing? I, I want to like you, but <laughs> right. It almost feels yeah. like disrespectful to the other artists that came yeah. afterwards that, you know, totally were inspired by them who are still making music currently. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and that's the thing where, I, I mean, often you look at artists who are able to successfully age into middle career and it's sometimes it's them kind of acknowledging what's going on and not necessarily doing it, you know, it's it's not like it's not like they're fully incorporating it into their music. But someone someone who yeah. I think has had mm. a really great late career um, is Jack White and Jack yeah. White, like. He's he's fully embraced hip hop in his music in in a very Jack White way. Like it's not like he's doing like cringy Jack White raps, but like he featured Q-Tip on his last album and like you know all of all of his solo stuff is just like really interesting and feels very it feels very tapped into what's going on in the broader culture and it doesn't feel like it's trying to be a nostalgia act. And I think that you know I I think it's funny cuz I think I, I think his albums are, in my mind, they're kind of like cult favorites that I just, I don't think they get, I don't think they get the love they deserve. Like, I think his, all of his solo albums are, continue to really fantastic yeah. run. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I saw him in concert once and I had never seen someone play an instrument like that. It was just, it melted my brain. It was beautiful to watch. He's incredible live. He's actually, I've seen him live a couple times. He's actually the first show I saw post lockdown last year. Um, oh, wow. And it was, it was 
incredibly cathartic. I want to drag out and highlight a bit more uh, the point Maggie was making about respect. Yeah. And because I, I think that's really important to like good late stage, late career stuff is to sort of not, not even necessarily try to incorporate what's going on outside. Like I, I have no issue with artists continuing to just do their thing. Yeah. If that's what they want to do. But like, I think that like you're saying, there's sort, there's sort of like a bitterness that creeps in. Yeah. When you keep doing a thing that was culturally relevant and that was getting you a lot of attention and you're seeing diminishing returns on it, there becomes almost this tendency to blame the world for moving on, which is just sort of how the world and how culture works. Either being willing to actively engage within work or at the very least being willing to live and let live, I think just not even necessarily in the work, but as an attitude, yeah, as an approach to your work. I think that mm-hmm. having that sense of like, I'm just going to do my thing. You can keep doing your thing is great. And I think a lot of cool stuff comes out of just trying to hang on to a thing that you love doing. But also, like you were saying, culture moves on. And that's just sort of how how things go. And so insisting that you are still owed cultural relevance yeah. is yeah. a really, really quick way to turn me off of your late career. Yeah. I think it's something that musicians, especially a lot of a lot of musicians kind of from from the rock era have struggled with too because it's not only that their music has less cultural relevance it's also that music broadly has less cultural relevance than it did in the 70s you know music is still sure. obviously mm-hmm. a big thing but you know with the rise of more accessibility to you know the rise of home video makes film more accessible to people. The rise of the internet makes all kinds of culture more accessible to people. And music is still huge and important. But the 60s and 70s, music was the culture of the youth, you know, and the Mm -hmm. culture. Yeah. Whereas it's just it's just not anymore. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's still important to a lot of people and it's still a very powerful thing. But the reality is just that you know, it doesn't mean the same thing. And I think that that's something that a lot of... I blame TikTok. Yeah, yeah. Well, (laughs) maybe it's going to mean something new now. Um, (laughs) Evolution is changing. But there was was definitely a period where the ways it's relevant have changed. uh, And that's something that... I think that that's something that is hard to grasp. And I imagine is very hard to understand if you are someone who was especially part of the part of the generation and the movements that like really believed music could change the world. It was a big cultural revelation mm-hmm. that meant a lot to a lot of people. And I don't think that sentiment exists anymore. I, mean, I think it does. I, I don't think to the same extent. Though, yeah. By a wide yeah. Margin. yeah. It diffused but, a bit. I mean, yeah, the yeah, idea of yeah. like a huge rock band that everyone knows and yeah. loves, I think is kind of a, a thing yeah. of the past. One of the things, too, is just, you, you know, because music has fractured into all of these micro genres and because people have more access to more music than ever, you know, there's all kinds of people like like the biggest artist, probably the biggest artist on Earth right now is Bad Bunny or someone like that, who I could not I believe so. Yeah. I could not tell you a single song of. Right. And that's a just because I'm old, but B there's just less cultural penetration because yeah. the focus of music is spread with, you know, more mass media where there's very few people 
in the 60s in the quote-unquote West who would not be able to at least tell you a Beatles song. There was a cultural ubiquity enjoyed by bands of a certain era that just doesn't exist anymore. This is a little off the late career thing, but I do think also part of that that's important to note, especially with like the Bad Bunny example, is that a lot of that is a greater accessibility to the sorts of cultural platforms and cultural relevance from people outside the yes. sort of Europe yeah. and US yes. sphere. Yeah. Like a lot of why Bad Bunny is such a big deal is that he's a pretty big deal in a lot of Latin America. Yes. And mm -hmm. he's not unknown in the US or anything, but like he is a lot of the reason he's such a big deal on Spotify or whatever is that yeah. people who aren't in Europe and the United States and to a lesser extent Canada are getting to decide what yeah. the mainstream culture is. And so the bitterness that we sometimes see, it just makes yeah. that even more sour because it's yes. like, yeah. well, yeah, you're competing with yeah. so many other different people and us as consumers yeah. of music don't even really view it as a competition, but yeah. Well, art is a competition. You know, <laughs> whoever makes the best art wins. They get the gold medal. And that's, yeah. That's right. Oh, that's right. Yes. And often with that sort of, that exact sort of bitterness, one of the one of the movements that spawned the most sort of bitter reactions from people in late periods was when hip hop started to take over rock. The amount of, mm -hmm. yeah. and, and the amount of implied racism in a lot of the hate toward hip hop, it, it really, it's very similar to, to what you're saying there, Maggie, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. As I believe Noah has never mentioned before, uh, same thing with disco too. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I think all of us are at the age where we remember, you know, oh, rap is going to ruin music. Oh, yeah. uh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> which is so funny in retrospect. Yeah. Or like, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not even music, which yes, it yeah. is. Right. As, yeah, as a music yeah. theorist, yes, it is. I am not taking <laughs> questions on this point. You know, is still not an uncommon attitude, but was definitely like back late 90s, early 2000s was just such a huge cultural yeah. thing mm -hmm. was like, is rap, does this even count as music or whatever? And it's just like a lot of that is people like especially like, you know, the alt rock 90s kids starting to grow out of being the most culturally yeah. relevant force in music and not taking it very well. <laughs> And I think it's really interesting because now what we're starting to see that same kind of mechanism starting to happen with hip hop now, because, you know, raps had a long reign mm -hmm. in the last couple of years. Yeah. We've seen what I would call the first kind of late career rap albums, or at least the first very successful late career rap albums, you know, Jay-Z's yeah. yeah. 444 or um, uh, Tribe's. Uh, the new Tribe album that came out a couple years ago. And that was that was absolutely phenomenal. Like really, really great album. Kendrick Lamar's album that came out. But yeah, I think I think it's it's interesting that we are seeing now we're starting to see Jay-Z's kind of aged into this elder statesman of hip hop, you know, and, you know, yeah. Kanye's not aged as well. Yeah. We're entering the period where we are first starting to get rap artists entering their their late career. And we are also starting to see a bit of a decline in the relevance of hip hop. Um, it's kind of a decline in the same way that rock was declined, which is it's not actually really yeah. declining so much as it is just being absorbed into mm -hmm. pop music. Yeah. 
sort of diversifying as well. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's an interesting place to be in. I think there's still a lot of people, uh, especially a lot of people with boomer mentalities that still think of rap as relatively new and stuff like that. But it's yeah. like yeah. rap started in the early 70s. It's really yeah. started to take off in the 80s, you know, early 80s. But even if you look at that, yeah. like we're looking at, we're approaching yeah. like almost... You know, like over 30 years at minimum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah. Exactly. If you draw the line as conservatively as possible, we're yeah. over 30 years of rap and hip hop being a pretty dominant cultural yeah. force. That's kind of where rock was in like the late 80s, you know, 50s yeah. to yeah. the 80s. And in the 90s, you know, grunge is one of the last major rock movements. So we are, we're yeah. entering that period. It's an interesting moment to see what will happen with hip hop, rather, as we've got these rap artists hitting their hitting their late career and figuring out what what late career rap looks like. Yeah, this is probably too much of a tangent, but I do want to just register a little pushback on the claim that grunge is the last uh, major rock movement. Ooh, fight, fight, fight. It, it may be the last before you start to really look at rock blending with pop and becoming absorbed in pop. I think that that's probably fair. I, I would call it the last moment that rock had cultural ubiquity. Maybe like, yeah, yeah, because because there is there is the garage scene, there is pop punk and stuff like that. Are we calling like new metal rock, though? Because I think new metal was pretty culturally ubiquitous. Oh, against some people's will. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. not everyone liked it. But yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I've mentioned this before, but Korn had a cameo on the TV show Monk, just for a sense of like how well known Korn <laughs> was as a band. <laughs> That's so wild. It was nuts. <laughs> I could not have predicted that in a million years. But I think kind of in my mind, what I think of with this with grunge is maybe maybe yeah. not the last, but grunge is the beginning of the end of yeah. rock's, you know, cultural dominance. I would agree with that. I have I have in the past described 1991 as the last most important year in rock history, yeah. and I think that's true. Specifically, like, what's really interesting is grunge is, it's not the first one, but it was the biggest rock yeah. movement that was a reaction to rock. You know, it was a reaction right. to sort of the, the 70s and 80s excesses, and all punk kind of was, yeah. but grunge reached a mainstream by being this sort of ironic jab at bloated dad rock, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, to sort of tie this all back together, it's sort of the late career of rock as a genre began ah. with grunge. Yes. When Nirvana entered the scene, suddenly all of these acts who a lot of them had very good runs through 60s, 70s, and even 80s, yeah. suddenly they looked like old people when Nirvana yeah. hit yeah. the scene. Yeah, they very quickly became nostalgia yeah. acts and never really recovered. We're running probably toward the end here, but there are a couple acts that I wanted to kind of bring up in this that we haven't mentioned yet. I don't really have that much to say, except that her late career revival is really incredible and deserves credit. And this is Tina Turner. It's incredible because you Mm. you think like when, I, I think Tina Turner is one of these artists who has a late career revival that most people actually think of the late career more than they think of like the quote unquote prime, you know, because I think I think if you asked a lot of people, especially now, what decade they associate with Tina Turner with, they would say the 80s, right? Like people think of 
big hair, pop diva Tina Turner. But the reality is Tina Turner was the queen of rock and roll. Like she was she was enormous in the early 60s and late 50s even. Yeah. And I, I think that's a that's a late career revival. And another one kind of on similar timelines is Cher is another one of the, these artists oh. who I don't really have that much analysis for them, but I think they're both, they're two similar artists who were kind of a certain kind of pop queen in the 50s and 60s, and especially the 60s, a certain kind of pop queen, and then kind of fell off and then found rebirth in the 80s and 90s, doing what is very different musically, but is kind of like culturally occupying the same space as a yeah. sort of pop diva. Yeah. yeah. Did y'all have any that we didn't get to that you want to shout out or mention or any personal favorites or anything? Yeah, actually, one of my pandemic uh, hobbies was kind of just catching up on old favorite bands to see, you know, what they were up yeah. to. Uh, yeah. Probably my biggest surprise was there was a band that I really liked. It was an Irish band, um, Little Green Cars. And I went to go see what their, you know, new albums were. And it turns out they um, had been working on an album for like three years. Uh, and then they abruptly broke up uh, and splintered into a solo act and a new band called Soda Blonde. And it turns out they're incredible <laughs> and uh, <laughs> even better than the music that they used to make. Yeah, I I don't know much more about yeah. what went down, but it was awesome. <laughs> that is a, a really interesting phenomenon, too, when that we didn't even yeah. talk about at all. When someone leaves a band or a band breaks up or when when someone's like second band is, you know, more interesting and culturally relevant than the one that they were originally known for. That is a really an, an interesting happening. I'm trying. Yeah. I'm sure there's other examples of it. I'm trying to think of them, but none are coming to me right now. Right. I mean, I would argue Rob Zombie. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> that ties into the thing I wanted to bring up, which is we talked about like late career revivals. But I'm also just interested, like from a fan perspective in the idea of like late career rediscovery where like it's yeah. not like Ooh. the band suddenly became more culturally relevant but you suddenly reconnected with them like i had this recently happened to find out that garbage oh yeah uh, the band that did like oh, only happy when it rains and stuff yes uh, they've been releasing yeah. mu new music this whole time and like i was listening they, their latest album is it's called no gods no masters it rules it's incredible uh highly recommend but like and you know it, it sounds like we were talking, it sounds like garbage of the 90s, but mature and has like much more explicit political themes and which, you know, they were never they never shied away from or anything. But like it, it really it felt in a lot of ways like the final form of what garbage was always doing. That's really which cool. was really cool to see and to sort of come back and sort of find that. Yeah. And reconnect with that. Because again, they they've continued to make music this whole time, but I just I just didn't know, and suddenly I found out, and I looked up, and I will probably at some point go back and listen to some of the albums in between. But just sort of jumping from self titled and was it Garbage Two was the second one, Version Two those those sort of were the big ones, and then jumping forward to No Gods No Masters was a really interesting experience to just sort of see 
that they were still out there and that they were still doing interesting things. And I don't think it led to any major cultural yeah. reevaluation of garbage or anything. But like, it's also was really cool at, at a personal level to rediscover and reconnect with that music. Mm-hmm. I've heard they're really great live currently. Oh, I that would not surprise yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. I think one like that for me was Rush. Rush's 20, sometime in the 2010s, they released Clockwork Angels, which is a really solid album by Rush. It's very rushy, you know? And like, I was very used yeah. to like listening to the 70s <laughs> and 80s Rush stuff and listen to this. And it it was the same, but different in a in a good yeah. and interesting way. And I, yeah, I, I really loved that. I mean, another one that I don't think this is like, shock with the late career discovery or stuff like that. But actually, this is one, this is probably an artist that I actually kind of got into late career retroactively um, is most of my introduction to getting into Johnny Cash was the American recordings. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's kind of another, another high watermark for late career stuff. Right. Yeah. I thought of him earlier when we were talking about, um, yeah, incorporating new music. It was like Johnny Cash <laughs> covered yeah. some fantastic new music. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, you look at especially Hurt. Like that was yeah. that was a huge cultural moment for yeah. him. Well, and I think it's interesting because that actually that actually speaks to something that I think one of the ways that people can often find success in their late career for stuff like that is by pairing with producers or co-writers or stuff like that that have their you know thumb on the pulse and that's the big thing with johnny cash is it's him pairing with rick rubin right and i mean by that point rick rubin wasn't exactly young but rick rick rubin very clearly has always kind of younger than johnny cash yes Mm -hmm. well well and rick rubin is one of these figures that clearly has just always had his finger on the pulse of what's going on you know like he's he's always been culturally relevant yeah I mean, yeah, collaborations in general are, I think, a really interesting part of, you know, you get past the point of your your big, like, yeah. moment in the spotlight. And partly, like, I, I think a lot of that is, like, there, there will be people who just want to work with you because, yeah. you know, you're Johnny Cash, of course. Like, but, you know, it's similar, when we talked about, like, Get Lucky and Random Access Memories, a lot of that was, like, yeah, just Nia Rogers and Daft Punk. I really love Four or Five Seconds, the the... Kanye song, Kanye, Rihanna, and Paul McCartney yeah. song. I think that song's I that song. fantastic. I don't know if this is exactly the continuation, but I think it kind of is because there there was like a break. But I I think a, one of the great great underrated sort of late career albums is uh, the Endless River, the Pink Floyd one that was made out of like a, oh, it was after yeah. Rick Wright died. The band took a bunch of his sort of like instrumental recordings and made an album out of it. And it's really fantastic. It's kind of like just like Pink Floyd ambience, you know, but I had kind of written off like late career Floyd after Roger Waters left. Like there's some there's some good stuff in Gilmore era Floyd. But in general, it was something that wasn't super interesting to me. But I listened to this album and it's like it's really, really fantastic. Like if anyone likes good music or Pink Floyd. Um, Not a fan of either. I, I don't think there's any fans of Pink Floyd in my audience. <laughs> I don't think there's any fans of good music in mine. But, uh... <laughs> That's a, a late career album that it's, and it's a really, it's a really sort of like touching album too, because it's them kind of 
putting aside differences. I wouldn't say their differences are fully put aside, yeah. but... Was Waters involved? Or? Yeah, yeah, Waters was involved. Yeah, I'm not familiar. Yeah. Oh, it's oh, yeah. it's cool. a you should check it out. It's a really great album. It's so most of the album is just there's one song with lyrics on it that is eh, um, but all of the rest is just instrumentals and it's just sort of like extended Pink Floydy instrumentals yeah. and it's really cool. fantastic and it also it's just like a nice reminder of how important Rick Wright is to that band because in the sort of egos involved in the rest of the band, you can kind of forget the <laughs> the quiet little Rick right there. And you re you listen to those yeah. based on his recordings and realize how essential he was to what we think of as the Pink Floyd sound. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of mentioned, but I haven't really mentioned that Bob Dylan's entire late career is really good. Rough and Rowdy Ways, uh, especially the latest yeah. one, is mm -hmm. amazing. But like... He's he's had an incredible run of late career stuff that is it, it's what I was talking about with like songwriting and poeticism um, is yeah. like he just has such maturity. And it's interesting because he doesn't have like what he really had in in his prime was an ability to comment on what's happening in the times. He doesn't really have that anymore, but yet he doesn't really try to have that yeah. anymore is the thing that I think is like yeah. like he He's kind of writing these pieces about American history and, you know, his own career and stuff like that. And they're really fantastic. Yeah. I mean, that was like, not not to drag this out even longer, but uh, that was one of the things with um, the Zealot Gene that I found really impressive was, uh, I think to an extent, Ian Anderson did still have a, like a solid capacity to speak on yeah, the Zealot Gene itself, the song, not the album, but it is, it's basically you know one of those pieces of art that's just like, why is everyone fighting all the time? Can't we all agree? Yeah, but it's like the only one that I have ever heard that isn't unbearable about it. <laughs> like, and like I I really like that song, and I think that that sort of that capacity to comment on what is very much a, a a very important part of modern society without like missing the nuances of it was really impressive to me. One other thing that I had wanted to bring up, and it is yeah probably too late into this recording to start a whole <laughs> nother can of worms. So I will leave this largely as a thought exercise to the listener. Sort of the concept of a late career as applied to one-hit wonders. Yeah. And... Oh, wow. Like, I sort of have been visiting a lot of, like, the stuff that Chumbawamba did after Tub Thumping. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's, you know... <laughs> Chumbawamba are It's great. really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. yeah. <laughs> Probably not enough time to yeah. dissect that uh, whole concept. And we, we talked about a lot of other things that were really interesting, to me at least. Yeah. I don't know about anyone else, but like, <laughs> but just to throw that out there, listeners, if you would like to continue thinking about this topic, that's maybe an area that might be worth having thoughts about. I was also going to say one other late career album that fully, fully understood what was going on culturally um, was Fetch the Bolt Cutters, Fiona Apple's album. And it's like broadly about mental illness. And, you know, yeah. uh, it's a very post Me Too album. And it's uh, mm -hmm. a bunch of it is just like recorded on GarageBand. Like it's it's such yeah. a. So good. It, it, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's such an album of the times, uh, which doesn't really. Yeah doesn't really surprise me because it's it's also like it's not like Fiona Apple it, it's kind of late career but it's also not like there was like an 
abnormal gap. Like she doesn't release albums too frequently. That's one more yeah. that I wanted to. I'm just now that we're at the end, all of them are coming into my head where I'm like, <laughs> oh, I didn't recommendations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think a thought that I wanted to throw in, here's my thought experiment to leave on, is something that I wanted to throw on is I think it is easier than it has been maybe ever, certainly in a long time, to have kind of late career successes because labels have way less power in music. Yeah. Um, and it's way easier for people to just sort of release stuff and it's way easier for people to find stuff that was released by artists. Like I think we've had, mm -hmm. yeah. we're in a period where there's a lot more career longevity because of the nature of distribution. And that this has been true for a while, but there's, it feels like we're in a cultural moment of nostalgia in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, you know, to, to an extent that sometimes comes across as disrespectful and condescending to a lot of the really cool stuff that is being made now. Yeah. But like, I think there is, a significant interest in the music of the past. Yeah. For a lot of complicated reasons that are probably not <laughs> unpackable before we should start wrapping this up. But one more Louis Armstrong's late career revival from as as a crooner and what a wonderful world is one of the original sure. kind of late career uh. revivals that is really incredible. Okay, I'm done now. You're not wrong. <laughs> yeah, okay. Maggie, you got any more thoughts? Oh, man, no, this is really fun. Uh, like I said, this was like one of my pandemic hobbies was uh, yeah. me catching up on old yeah. bands. And it's really fun. You know, uh, I'm also someone that likes to, you know, make sure that I listen to new music. But, yeah. you know, it's also fun to keep track of what uh, what old bands you used to love. Who knows? Maybe they broke up and, uh, <laughs> and started uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. completely anew. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. If people want to find you, where can they find you? Yeah. Oh, thank you guys for having me on. This was very fun. Yeah. You can find me. <laughs> I was about to say Twitter. Um, maybe not, though. Uh, yeah. On X. I mean, by the time this episode comes out, it <laughs> might not exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hesitate to say. Um, but yeah, uh, their Instagram, Maggie Mae Fish. Uh, you can check out my uh, video essays uh, over on YouTube, Maggie Mae Fish, and on Nebula. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. And yeah, I look forward to finding out what when when does when do video essayists enter late career? What's our what's our timeline? <laughs> oh, on my that? God. Hopefully not. Well, hopefully, I, like, uh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Probably like six weeks after your first viral. Yeah. Hit, <laughs> six weeks. yeah, I'm already in late career. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm an ancient career. at this point, but. All right. You know where Corey and I are. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Those are not places of honor. <laughs> All right. Bye, everyone. But yeah, bye. <laughs> bye.